You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for downloading this episode. And if you have any questions for me, it's especially important that you send them in in light of this new format where I take three of your questions every Friday, which may change to Thursday, by the way, but if it uh, it doesn't really matter, we take three of your questions every week and try uh, my best to answer them in a coherent and logical way. So, in light of that, it would be great if you would send in any questions that you have, whether they be theological or stuff about conspiracy stuff, or just whatever, anything at all, send it in, and I'll be happy to take a stab at it. Uh, You can do so through Facebook or through any number of the websites like Ancient Aliens Debunked or ConspiracyClothes.com, BibleProphecyTalk.com, Chris White Ministries, Stop Sleep Paralysis, whatever it is. Uh, You can also, as I said, get get me through Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc. Okay, let's move on to a quick show note and then your questions. So first the show note, I have almost completely decided to begin work on a feature length documentary film, which I think will be um, one of my best ever. At least it will be one that I am probably the most passionate about uh, and want to do as good of a job as I possibly can on. I'm not 100% sure on it yet. I want to contact some people and see if they will be a part of it. And if they will, I'll make an announcement about that in the next uh, few weeks. So we will uh, move on to question number one. Okay, this one comes from Walker, and he says, What's your opinion on the whole Bible translation controversy? I've heard from other New World Order conscious pastors that the King James is the only scriptural translation, and that even... In that even further that the NIV was translated under the tutelage of occultists. Is this just another anecdotal hype or what? I love the King James, but sometimes I'm not even clever enough to understand it, especially in the Old Testament. By that note, how are we supposed to bring an already uh, opposed world to Christ by beating them over the head with an eloquent but complex translation? I'm stuck on this issue. Okay, really good questions here, and questions that I get quite a lot from new Christians and old Christians. Um... And I actually like that I continually get this question because it it shows me that there are a lot of people becoming new Christians, so it's a good thing. Um, now, I am a person who is sympathetic to the idea that the King James is, the, or to be more specific, the Textus Receptus, the Greek text, which the New Testament in the King James is based on, is a better Greek manuscript tradition than the alternative manuscript tradition, which is sometimes referred to as the Alexandrian texts or Westcott Hort. Sometimes refer people refer to it. I think that the Textus Receptus is better. That's my personal conviction. A lot of people feel differently about that, and that is okay. A lot of people that have gone to seminary, really good and wonderfully saved people that have gone to seminary and are smarter than me, believe that the Alexandrian texts are better, uh, a better manuscript tradition. And we'll talk about some of the reasons they believe that and um, some of the, the reasons that I don't believe that. But I, I don't think it matters that much. And you don't need to be really super mad at those people that believe that. They have good reasons for it, which we'll discuss. Um, but at the same time, 
uh, I even though I am uh, pro the King James and New King James, which the uh, which is also based on the Textus Receptus in the New Testament, uh, is based on. I also think it's great to read other Bible translations, and it's okay to do so uh, for reasons I will also discuss. So I um, kind of am the best of both worlds in that sense. I think that we. Um, but I don't, I, I think it's important for you to know why I feel that way. And I think that the majority of the reasons have to do with understanding better how we got our Bible and what it actually is that you have in front of you. Because the more you know about the Bible, the less scared you get about this. The, you are much more prone to being super frightened of other translations if you don't know a whole lot about the Bible. And that's why this is a new Christian issue primarily. And unfortunately, some people never make it out of that gauntlet um, but and become completely fixated on the idea their whole life. But, but it is a new Christian issue because it, that's when it's the most scary. Because when you're first, you haven't even read like 90% of the books in the Bible yet. And you're, you've now got somebody telling you that the Illuminati basically created a version of the Bible that it wants you to read. And in that version is the one that the Illuminati like wins, if you believe, you know. And then you're like, whoa, I do not want the Illuminati version of the Bible. That's all I know. And, and, you know, it, you don't really, and you, it's presented in such a way that you are, uh, convinced that it's telling a different story. It's a different Jesus. Maybe there's even different stories. Maybe Jesus like goes somewhere and flies a kite or something, you know, completely different than he did in the other version. That's the impression that you get after watching one of these things. Uh, but the reality is, if you put these two traditions side by side, I mean, these are the, the same manuscripts that we get the number like 99.5% accuracy. Like if you compared them, uh, these handwritten letters with one another, they are exactly the same thing, like to a 99.5% margin. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's extremely high. And the differences are almost totally omissions in the Alexandrian text. That is to say that a word may be dropped here and there. So instead of uh, Jesus Christ, it might say just Jesus. Or uh, you know, just little words are dropped at the end of sentences, perhaps. But there is no like addition that I am aware of. That is to say... Um, you know, they, they put in something that's not there. Like, and then Jesus did something else. Like, they didn't add to anything. They just took away a word here. One of the most famous and probably most egregious ones uh, is one where, you know, uh, it says, this kind, talking about uh, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and uh, Jesus says, in regard to a demon that wouldn't come out, that the apostles tried to cast out, he said, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. That's what it says in the Textus Receptus, but yet in the uh, Alexandrian, it says, this kind comes out only by prayer. So it just omitted the end of fasting. That's probably one of the very few that actually changes anything. But I don't want to downplay that because I agree with uh, most people that the omissions are not good. Okay, So many of you that you know have half of an email typed out to me right now, you can, you can rest assured that I am in agreement with you that it's not a good thing, even though I would say it's very minor and there aren't that many that actually change anything, I don't like the omissions that are there. And whether it was nefarious or accidental, I'm not sure. We can explore that a little later. Uh, but I would say that as you begin to really understand what that is, number one, it's just in the New Testament. Like if you got the ESV or the Net Bible or any other Bible, it's going to be based off 
in the Old Testament the same thing that the King James is based off of, that is the Masoretic texts. And we'll perhaps get into some of the uh, details about that in a minute. But let's talk about what in the world is a manuscript tradition first, okay? So in this case, we've got our two main manuscript traditions. We've got, on one hand, the Textus Receptus tradition, and the other hand, the Alexandrian or the Westcott Horde, or however you want to put that. So the on, on the Textus Receptus side, you have not as many of them, and they are a little later dated, okay? That's the main negative part about the Texas Receptus. The main good part about the Alexandrian Texas is that we have more of them and that they are demonstrably older than the others. So the, the thing that a person would say is like, look, these are older and we have more of them, so these are better. Now, I wouldn't say that older or more equals better. That's where I would differ because if you a manuscript tradition is is like okay let's say somebody took a copy of the New Testament that they had copied um, and took it to Alexandria and maybe they copied it really quickly you know omitting a few words words at the end or however that came about originally uh, it being copied over and over and over again perhaps somebody had a lot of money to throw into that particular copy you know Alexandria was the center of the world for for many many many. Uh, centuries, so so it, it had a good starting place to be. You know, this where the Library of Alexandria. A lot of people were interested in literature. So, for, for whatever reason, that one got preserved better and and recorded more. But just because there are more copies of it and we can trace the oldest copies back further, doesn't mean that that was the best copy. And the Textus Receptus, though we don't have actually our hands on any that are older, and though there are, though there are less of them. I believe that that is a more accurate manuscript tradition, and one of the reasons is because of the omissions. Uh, the other, I, it is it is it is very improbable, uh, and, and it's almost unheard of that you have these kind of additions that would require the Textus Receptus to essentially be added to quite a lot. If the Textus, if the Alexandrian texts were the original better ones, then you would have the Textus Receptus essentially being added to all the time. Uh, that seems unlikely. There are other reasons out there that I'm sure you can find uh, if you're already uh, in that sort of place as to why the Texas Receptus would be a superior manuscript. But uh, in regard to the question that was posed here about the uh, Westcott and Hort being occultists and this kind of thing, I remember when my brother-in-law was reading the ESV. This is back when I was militant KGV. KJV. And I was just going to really, really let him have it about this. And I was telling him, you know, these guys were devil worshiping occultists and they just, you know, this and that and that. And I was going to just prove it to him because he was like, you know, he said, well, I, you know, what what kind of evidence do you have for that? And I was like, oh, evidence? I got evi I, evidence. I've seen this so many times on the internet. It's not going to be any trouble getting any evidence for, for this. So I go looking for actual primary sources about this and how much in the occult were these guys actually involved in. And it was pretty scanty evidence. I mean, one guy was sort of involved in a particular... The, the most things that people cited was this guy was involved in this club in college that really wasn't a cult. It was... It, it, it really wasn't a big deal. Uh, and if that's really what everybody was pointing to, that these guys were occultists and everything, I was like, if that's what they were talking about, then I kind of got had. Um, 
and I had to face up to that, and I still didn't change my position, but it was one of those first things that I realized, like, you know, maybe it's not quite as crazy as I was told, but nevertheless, um, I think that that's one of the things that hurt us most, is when we do that kind of stuff. And when we go crazy thinking that the King James uh, translators are infallible. You know, the King James translators wrote a huge preface, and you can read it anytime you want. Uh, the original 1611 contained a major preface. I think it's called something like the Translators to the Readers or something like that, in which they said a number of things. But one of the things that they made clear was that there were a lot of occasions that they just didn't know what to do. You know, perhaps like a certain Hebrew word was only uh, mentioned one time in the Bible, and so they didn't have any context to how to translate it, and and you know the Hebrew people didn't know what to do with it either, and so they just didn't know what to do. So sometimes they would put footnotes, and they just were clearly people that were evidently fallible. They were saying, "We don't know. This is a complicated thing," you know. One of the reasons that it's good to read a, an updated version, um, you know, there's lots of good reasons to, 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 to do that. One is that you understand it better. Uh, like this uh, uh, person was saying, that he's, you know, you're not getting the fullness of what you would get. It's the word of God. You want to understand it. You know, if you were in Chinese, you wouldn't force a Chinese person to read the King James Version. That would be ludicrous. So the language, especially in the Old Testament, where I would say, we're all reading from the same stuff. It's the Masoretic text. Textus Receptus, Westcott, and Hort issues have nothing to do with the Old Testament, okay? But the point is, uh, it's not that big a deal. I, I always recommend the New King James Version, and it is, I think, the best of both worlds. You get the Textus Receptus in the New Testament, and you get the Old Testament easily understandable. That being said, there are mistakes in uh, the earlier King James Version uh, that are carried over in the in the in the New King James. Let me talk about these mistakes because people will uh, raise an eyebrow at that, especially a new Christian that doesn't want to hear that there are mistakes in the Bible. There aren't really mistakes in the Bible, but let me get back to my point uh, and say, saying this analogy to un to understand these mistakes. If you were going to, let's say. Um, the Chinese had written this awesome book, you know, let's like the, this great, huge, thick, like war and peace book. Well, they got one like that. Uh, 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 the art of war by what's his name. So you're the first guy to find that book to be pretty interesting. So you want to translate that book to English and you know, um, English really good because you're a native English speaker. Maybe you even studied English too. So you're like really good about etymology. You know, all about English. You're a good English speaker. But you are only, you know, you're pretty darn good at Chinese, too. I mean, you're, you can speak it fluently and everything else, but it's not your native language, and you, and you are really, I mean, it's definitely your second language. But yet, you want to translate this book that you really like into English. Now, if you did that, inevitably, because there's, there's a difference in those two languages, a wild difference, in the same way that there's a difference between both Greek and Hebrew into English, um... And there's a lot of things that just simply don't translate that well. And you add to the fact that you don't know it perfectly um, and don't have the resources at that time to find out exactly what the meaning of that one word that isn't mentioned anywhere else. You haven't even discovered any uh, texts or you know the Dead Sea Scrolls or anything to give you more resolution on what that word means yet. So you don't even know yet. Um, you don't have the resources to really discover what that means in 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 the historical time so 
all these things are, are kind of working against you. And so you, in your translation of um, the art of war into English, a Chinese person could come back and say, you know, actually, this word right here is kind of a mistake. You, you translated this uh, uh, chicken, and actually, it was turkey. And, you know, this is actually what we call a turkey, but you wrote chicken. So it's a mistake. Now, you could look at that and say, well, it's it's not really a mistake. It's sort of a lost in translation. Then maybe that's not the best example. Maybe something that's better lost in translation. All I'm saying is that that's the kind of stuff that the King James translators were saying. Look, there's that kind of stuff all over this thing. That we, we, there were, we're not, you know, they, we're, they weren't out there to to change the world. They were trying to make the English versions that already existed, like the Geneva Bible and stuff like the, you know, the... Uh, uh, like William Tyndale's Bible and stuff like that. They were great. They were just as much as the Word of God, and they discussed this in their translator notes and everything, but they just had some, you know, things that needed to be, you know, done away with, and they said their version wasn't going to be like the perfect end all. I think they said the words like something like, you don't start a work and, and perfect a work in the same instance, you know. This is a complicated thing, especially if you're handling the Word of God and you want it to be as close to the language as possible. That being said, let me let me say it like this using our analogy. If you went back to the art of war in its original language, okay, you're reading the very words that that, that sung, whatever that guy's name is, he wrote. It is in that sense perfect. That's what he wrote, and if you could understand Chinese completely, then you are reading exactly what he wrote, and it is in, in that sense perfect. Our limitation is we need all kinds of books and helps and concordances to better bring out the meaning of those Chinese words because we are not native Chinese speakers. So if we wanted to get really into it, we could go study, you know, that particular word that was used in that part of Art of War and say, oh, okay, that's actually Turkey because that's the one that goes gobble, gobble. And so you would read that in a concordance. You'd be like, okay, now I understand. That's how you would do a word study in Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew, but I can do a super word study on this thing and find out, you know, that actually the translator probably should have better translated that as Turkey because the, the original, you know, in their concordance, this is the one that goes gobble, gobble and stuff. And they put chicken but they probably should have put turkey so so that's why a lot of people say that the bible is perfect in its original languages but there are problems that key point here took me a long time to get there a lot of these newer translations like the esv the net bible and stuff like that fix okay but that's not the reason i i mean i like that i like reading them for those those reasons but the the honest truth is the reason i love to read other versions is because sometimes it helps me understand things uh, um, that I normally wouldn't have caught. Um, and I even like to, you know, uh, I like to read the New Testament in different versions as two, different versions as, uh, versions because I, for the same reason. And I think that if you are aware, and I wouldn't, I mean, this is how I do it, is that I can see the, the footnotes because every Bible version is going to give you a footnote and they say, you know, other translations omit this word or other translations don't have or, or do have this here instead of this. Almost any competent modern translation will put a footnote there that says that. And let me tell you, there aren't that many Textus Receptus related issues. Again, we're talking about 99 point, almost 9% of these Greek texts are identical. Okay, so we're not dealing with two different stories. So it's really splitting hairs. But at the same time, again, I'm on your side. I think those places where they differ are not good. And that, it, you know, I prefer. That's why I read the New King, King James. So to answer the question, I would say don't worry. These guys aren't occultists or whatever. I would get in until 
you are firmly convinced of this in your own mind because, you know, after all, um, why believe me on this? I mean, what I would say is that I hope that you figure this out for yourself. But in the meantime, you can trust things like the New King James Version to understand it. And you can feel confident that you're using the Texas Receptus. Read the translator notes of the original a New King James Version, too, because they talk about what their purpose was for creating the New King James Version, which was to make an updated version with all the other fixes and stuff, you know, all the other updates, but but include the Texas Receptus. So wherever, you know, it differed with the Alexandrian text, they were going to take the Texas Receptus instead. So that was clearly their burden. Yes, I know that there is a website called Jesus the Savior that has an article about how the New King James is just as bad as the other ones. But I've done a podcast about that going point by point, showing how ridiculous that website is and how dishonest it is. And and that was a shock to me because I totally believed that. Uh, I remember actually not going to a church because they used the New King James. And I was like, I've heard that that's just as bad as the other ones. We're out of here. So it was a shock to me to realize that I had been had by a uh, 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 one of these websites that uh, you are presented with early on. So anyway, I think that's all I want to say about that. I apologize if that was sort of rambling. Uh, I tend to do that when I talk about this particular issue. There's just so much to say. So we will wrap it up and move on to question number two. Okay, so this question is kind of a spinoff of the question last week about the New World Order and Romans 13 and all this stuff. And uh, the question goes like this. This is from Mike. He says, before I heard last week's episode, I was going to ask you about what we should do when the proverbial Antichrist SWAT team comes to our door, either to kill us or take us to camps. You've pretty much clearly answered that. We should flee. Uh, We should flee until we get caught up. But when we do, don't go down in a blaze of glory, taking as many of them with us as we can, but go peacefully and preach the gospel wherever we go. I'm assuming if they want to kill us, uh, right then, we should also submit, is that correct? Um, okay, so my main question, questions branch off that, which is basically, uh, do you think or is there scripture that you found that shows that God will divinely protect children during the tribulation in the way I'm about to describe? This may be long-winded, but I'll do what I can to make it make sense. The hypo- hypothetical scenario is this. Antichrist sends out teams to gather up uh, the Christians to go to camps. We run until we get caught. We get caught in the end. We submit. Now all the adults are taken to camps. Let me just stop first and say, I don't think that submitting to the government is equal to submitting to the government when they come to kill you. I, I don't think that's what Paul meant. He, he just meant be a good Christian. I don't think he's what Mike is meaning here either, but I don't want to confuse the terminology of submit to the government in the same way of submit to be killed to the government because that's not what the focus of Romans 13 or Second Peter is. He's just saying pay your taxes and don't be a burden and, and, and break laws. Um, in this case, you know, you don't really have a choice to submit to the government if they come to your house and that you, they're surrounding your house with a SWAT team. You, you you can call it submit if you want, if your alternative is to, to shoot everybody and they'll shoot you too. I mean, it's not a, it's not a viable alternative to murder people that are not saved uh, just so they can then murder you as opposed to them taking you to a camp. But but to, to let's go back into this uh, question. He says, uh, but the uh, but we get caught in the end, we submit. Now all the adults are taken to the camps, but the children are take, taken too. Let's call them indoctrination schools because the Antichrist assumes parents, adults' minds are set, uh, are easy to threat, um, are 
a threat, but the children can be molded to follow and believe him as God, etc. So they indoctrinate children and to follow, uh, into following him like a Nazi German type thing, Hitler's youth, and may go so far as to give indoctrinated children the option to take the mark, as I'm understanding that they can't be forced on anyone. And then the children who were told the lie now trust the Antichrist, take the mark, and are condemned to hell because of it. Okay, so there's a lot of things here. I want to first deal with the mark of the beast type thing. We've got a lot of theories floating around the conspiracy Christian world about what the mark of the beast is, and I uh, am just along, right, right along there with them in terms of promoting a lot of crazy ideas about it. I don't think the Bible gives us really that many options that this thing is crazy. It doesn't say a whole lot about it other than it is a mark on your right hand or forehead that prevents your buying and selling, and it's in the context of people um, submitting, or I would submit, uh, to 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 separate themselves from the Christians that are being killed. In other words, if the the clear in indication here is that those who don't have the mark, that is the Christians, will not be able to buy or sell. These people that get the mark do so quite willingly, if for no other reason, uh, so that they can buy or sell and survive. Uh, it's it's it, the people want to be separated from. The Christians, they run to get the mark of the beast. It's, there's going to be a line around the block to get a mark, the mark of the beast. Not necessarily, I mean, probably because they also are, are deceived into worshiping the Antichrist or whatever, but, but also because it's an, it's from a logistical standpoint, it's a no-brainer. Uh, you don't want to be associated with the people that everybody hates now and that the world is totally turned against and like, if you see them, you would turn them in even if it was your brother or your daughter or whatever, you know, Jesus goes through a whole long list of family members and friends that will turn each other in when this deception goes down. So they're going to be absolute pariahs. You're not going to be one associated with them. And one shows up on your door, you're going to be like, get out of here or I'll shoot you myself or whatever. So I am going to go get one of these marks. It doesn't appear to be anything but something on your right hand or forehead to, 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 to distinguish you as not one of the ones that are going to get killed. No, 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 I got the mark. I got the mark. Look, look, see. It's 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 this distinguishing mark. The idea that you know it ha it's a microchip or some other kind of thing that changes who you are as a person or whatever is just stuff that we keep adding to the text because we would like to make it a little more sexy, basically, because it doesn't do anything else. It just it just is a mark. Uh, it doesn't have to carry your bank account information on it. I mean, it doesn't have to change your DNA. It doesn't have to do any of that. And that that stuff is. Is, is totally read into the text from my perspective. But nevertheless, the point and the, the, the heart of the question here, and, and the reason I read this one, is because it's a, it's a very interesting concept. What about the kids in this tribulation period? First of all, I would say that the tribulation period is short. Uh, it is a time when this really begins to happen. It is less than three and a half years. That is to say that at some point... After the midpoint, uh, all believers will be taken up. I don't know when. It could be hours. It could be years. But at some point after this great persecution begins, um, it's going to we're going to be taken from the midst of it. But the point is it's not very long. So I don't think a scenario of this kind of thing with long-term indoctrination and you know trying to grow them up like Hitler. Hitler was playing the long game with the Hitler youth. I don't think the Antichrist will have anything remotely looking like a long game. Uh, I don't know if children will be... I don't know what the deal with children are. You know, something I recently have been 
Uh, I'm about to do a, not in this next study, but the study after it, to deal with the verse that says uh, he will have show no regard to the desire of women. Uh, in the past, I've sort of postulated that could mean he was gay or something like that. But I'm not so sure. I, I, I want to make sure I, I say I don't really know this yet. I haven't looked into it in detail yet. But that idea of the desire of women, a lot of people say it's messianic in nature. That you know, But one thing you can be sure is that the baseline is that women, that the idea was that women desire of childbirth. That he, in a sense, he will show no regard for childbirth or that, that women you know, desire to give birth. He won't show any regard for that. I think that a connecting point, maybe a really weird verse, and it was at first or second Timothy four, that says, you know, that people will be forbidden to marry. So obviously you would you would assume that kids are forbidden too, but I don't know if there's something to that or not. It's really just a sort of a point that really has not a whole lot to do with it. But but I I don't think that the Antichrist is going to spend a whole lot of time with kids and trying to get them to do anything. I think he's just going to have. And one of the reasons I, I would say that theologically is that I think the Antichrist really is going to require somebody's uh, full, willing, knowing participation in this uh, worship. That I still think that you're, you, you know kids aren't going to be damned because they get the mark of the beast or because they are you, you know whatever. I still think that there is a time, though I cannot actually give this to you theologically or biblically. I can't give you a verse that, that's the so-called uh, you know, age of accountability. But we can show things like David, uh, you know, when his son died, he said, you know, I won't, uh, you won't come to me, but I will go to you, speaking of that, he will see him in, the, in, in heaven. So, so David's son was going to heaven, and he certainly didn't have time to, you know, follow the laws or, you know, whatever, do whatever was required in the old covenant. So the point is, you can make a case that kids, all kids go to heaven. Till a certain age, uh, when they no longer are kids. What age is that? What does that mean? It's a really slippery slope there. But thankfully, I don't have to be that judge. Thankfully, I don't have to be that judge. But God uh, does, I think. Anyway, my point is, is that I don't think the Antichrist can make the kids, you know, be whatever. But here's the broader issue about that. We're all like, oh my gosh, kids are going to get killed in this. This is going to be awful. But, but like kids were always killed in all times all you know very unfair stuff has been happening to humanity since the beginning every time a crazy horde of of people came over the horizon and you didn't live in a walled city it wasn't just the kids it was everybody it was just a, you know it was it was culturally a norm that they shouldn't kill the women and children women got ravaged and all this other stuff but in kids got taken into slavery and stuff like that less than they were killed but there was a plenty of instances where they were killed too so i mean what i'm trying to say here is that that alone is yeah that's that's not a reason to go down go out uh killing people if it's a no hope situation i think it's a different situation if we <laughs> we could get into so many hypothetical situations and i think that maybe that's uh at the end of the day we shouldn't hypothesize on every possible situation that could come up because i do think that there are scenarios of course when you need to defend your family scenarios that are absolutely 100 percent justifiable biblically or whatever um but i think in a lot of these things that we're talking about in terms of fleeing the antichrist during the great tribulation or what have you um you know if 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 that comes up not only i mean if you're caught 
and there's no way out, then that's just what's what your fate is. I think the line, you know, is, is in uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. It says, you know, those who are killed with the sword will be killed with the sword. It's just it's just the way it, you, it it fell. And you know, it's 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 not a bad thing from a biblical point of view. There's never a situation when a, when a Christian is killed that it doesn't isn't looked on, you know, in terms of good for that Christian. In terms of his, you know, that's the way, you know, look, it's discussed in scripture. So I, I don't want to say, dying isn't the worst thing that can happen to you unless you are unsaved. It's uh, it's just not. As Jesus says, don't be afraid of those that can kill the body. Be afraid of me. That's who you really need to focus uh, on. Um, but anyways, I wanted to go a little broader with this because I think that I had another point about the whole New World Order Christian world that I run into make a point on um so yeah i was i was thinking about different kind of aspects of the new world order stuff and and there's so many things that are unjustly happening out there you know like think of the pedophile rings out there or you know even something like fluoride is just a terrible thing or vaccines or all these different things that you could be like man we got to do something about that you know let's go change the world that, and when I say a lot of times, you know, don't focus so much on the New World Order and stuff like that or whatever, the, there's a lot of stuff out there that that I think that we are, as Christians are, 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 are probably one of the best types of people to go out and try to do something about that. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is a guy named Dan Stockin, who, uh, who lives in Tennessee. He is probably the most unsung hero of the anti-fluoride movement. He's a totally devoted Christian, always in the background. He's the one that has made every big step in the, in the anti-fluoride movement. When every city in Tennessee, you'll notice most of the cities in, that have stopped uh, fluoride are in Tennessee. And a lot of the big, the first time it was ever on the news and everything like that, it's always been Tennessee. That's because of Dan Stockin. Uh, and and he is the guy. He's a Christian, but he's and he has a passion that God has put on his heart. I think to 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 be an advocate for uh, the, get, the taking fluoride out of the water. Uh, similarly, you could be passionate, telling people about you know the the things that are wrong with the anti you know getting whatever whatever it is. There's a million things out there. The pedophile ring is you know how if you could draw attention to that and find creative ways to to draw attention to that and get people exposed to that. What a great thing and it would save lives and save all. And you know that's great. That kind of stuff is is so great to get behind. You know those kinds of issues. I don't consider that the same kind of thing as don't pay attention to the new world order. What I'm talking about is just like constantly watching David Icke videos or you know learning about some new thing or whatever. But but I want to say that that stuff is is good. Um, here's the thing, though, that I think is sometimes messed up, too, is that we put in this conspiracy world way too much importance on uh, on the dwindling you know, constitution and everything like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm American to the core. Hey, rah, rah. I'm serious about that. Uh, with first con conspiracy clothes shirts I ever made, I don't sell them anymore. Uh, but what, that's why I sort of started with this stuff: is making conspiracy themed T-shirts. Was the, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, is being eroded away and all that stuff. But you know, one of the, the, where this really hit me about the, the the fruitlessness of it all, and and in one sense I agree. I mean, it is our protection against a, t a bunch of tyranny, and this com this country is awesome because we are protected from tyrannies that over the course of history people have not been protected for i understand that the eroding of the, of the bill of rights is a terrible thing that will eventually result in tyranny okay got that don't you know don't write me about that i get it but here's the issue so 
Rome existed for a thousand, a thousand plus years, right? I mean, we've existed for 200 years and we're about out. I mean, they existed for a thousand and we're still going strong. And they had started out as a republic. That is before there was emperors and emperor worship and all that stuff. They were super anti-king. I mean, they hated kings. You call yourself a king, you are a dead man. We are a republic and we, the Senate decides what to do. We've got, they didn't have a constitution, but they had, you know, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that, that basically, you know, you, two people only could rule at, 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 at you know, there was no king. There was two guys, only one, one year term. And there had to be two of them. That is to pre- prevent a major check and balance. There, two guys, one year. That's how we rule. And in addition, of course, the Senate. So, so Roman virtue in terms of the, the breakdown of the Republic, you know, which happened with Julius Caesar, and then they went into the imperial system where emperors ruled and tyranny all abounded. But my point is, is that you can see in the history of Rome a lot of guys that that their whole bag was defending the honor of the, the the system of the republic and and the greatness of roman virtue and let me tell you they probably had more to boast about than we did in a lot of ways in some ways um the, the, certainly a much much older thing the rome was something to be patriotic about certainly at certain points in its history and and, and especially as the the senate system started to erode and it was got got less clear and less clear what was going on there and it started to move towards imperialism you saw people that were basically doing filibusters and saying look we can't let this happen the greatness of our virtuous thing and this if this goes away we're going to lose da 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 and you know in one hand you look back that now look back at that now rome has been uh, uh you know a dead uh nation for a long time and you think man you know that guy kind of wasted his breath you know wasted his life um and I guess on one hand, and to an unsaved individual, no, he didn't. That was a very virtuous way to go out. For a lot of the world, uh, that is the way to do it. That guy, you know, whoever, uh, uh, Cato, Cicero, or these guys, they they did well, and they and they 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 died well, and they should have something stuff named after them because they were these great. Uh, you know, virtuous people that were defending the Roman Republic in a time that it was all being eroded away. But it, but to a saved person who has a much higher calling, that's sort of a cheap thing to throw it all away for. And they did throw it all away for that. It's like, yeah, that's the way it was going. Let me tell you, I got news for you guys. The reason why we have made a constitution and a bill of rights is because that's the way that we humans, and maybe you know Satan's influence on us or what have you, but that's the way. Just we all will always do it. We will if you put us a box around uh, tyranny, then tyranny will eventually erode it away. Because tyranny will win over and over again, because it's not, because that's the way we 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 roll as humanity. Um, maybe in our fallen state, maybe it's because Satan's you know ultimately calling the shots at this point in the history of the world. But but tyranny is the norm, and we can prevent it the decay for a long enough time. But it's coming, so we had better have a a, a plan for tyranny more than like putting all our eggs in trying to stop. Uh, the eventual erosion. Now, again, please understand me. I am all for us trying to keep that eroded. But if that becomes your life, if that's what you do, you get on the internet and talk more about the erosion of the Constitution, and it wasn't. I wish that wasn't way. And if you could just change it just a little bit or whatever, I'm telling you, though it's 
virtuous to a degree, especially to an unsaved person. And I'm glad there's a bunch of unsaved people doing it. I, I, I guess I'm a little un- hypocritical here in that I know that there's always going to be the, the tons of unsaved people that are fighting that battle way harder than I am. And I'm glad that they're doing it because I, I want them to do it. But at the same time, you know, I would rather um, be doing better stuff than that. I'm glad somebody's doing it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's just ridiculous. I know that there's probably a lot of people that feel extremely passionately the other way around about that. And again, like Dan Stockin, maybe there are some of you out there that have that as a burden for lots of reasons that are what God has put on your heart to do, to fight the the, the Constitution, you know, for the Constitution and all that stuff. I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm not telling you that that's a bad uh, thing to do, especially in that situation. But I would say probably a majority of people in the context of this sort of conspiracy, Tea Party, Patriot world that we live in, we are putting like all of our whole life and everything into the defending of a dying system. Um, that, I mean, if you even l- glance at history, you know these systems don't stay around forever and if and we are following a pattern we're like rome on fast forward we're doing everything they did on like super fast forward so it took them a thousand plus years to do what we're already doing we are you know historically speaking probably not going to pull out of this i mean there's never been anybody that has that have tried and there's a good chance that we won't either so i'm not saying to give up on i know it sounds like i am but uh but i'm really i'm really just trying to encourage those people out there that don't have a specific calling to do this for the majority of the people that are just caught up in the in the fervor of it and the injustice of the whole thing realize that there are other injustices that are far more worth your time than uh than this particular one in my opinion <laughs> all right enough damage done there question number 3 All right, in keeping with controversial issues, this next one is, is masturbation a sin or not? Okay, so I talked a little bit about this, or a lot about it really, in a video that I did called How I Quit Watching Pornography. And I mentioned in that video, um, somewhat cryptically, uh, maybe too cryptically, I tried to explain it as best I could, uh, this particular issue, and um, so I want to get into a little bit more detail about it. First of all, is masturbation a sin uh, there are no biblical verses that I am aware of that say that it is a sin. The, the one that people point to is this particular guy in the Old Testament who it says he spilled his uh, seed on the ground and God uh, didn't take too kindly to that. But that particular issue was in context, not about the act of him spilling his seed on the ground, quote unquote, but all, but because of he did it as opposed to doing his duty to to give this one uh uh, woman a a child which was his duty under the law for this particular situation or whatever that was the problem not because he anyway so so there is no that i am aware of what the sin is is all matters of the heart that is looking at a woman to lust in your heart and thereby committing adultery after her it's all these heart level issues that are the sin in fact i would say that in some cases masturbation can prevent sin but this but this brings up a ton of questions and so we need to jump right into it and i also want to clarify it and say that for some of you masturbation may be a sin this might be one of those romans 14 issues which talks about you know one person eats you know vegetables and you know the the person who 
uh, doesn't feel convicted to, to eat only vegetables, shouldn't tell the person that uh, does not to do it and vice versa. Um, and we'll talk about what I mean by that as we progress. So um, what I described in that video was my process personally in a pure fantasy life. Okay, so if you're like probably most males in this culture these days that has internet access, you are were addicted to pornography at one point in your life. Maybe still are. That actually is a really tough thing because, as I described in that video, it's a neural synapse thing. You know, endorphins are releasing because you're seeing what you want when you want it. Uh, it, and it kind of becomes like this, you know, rat with the cocaine pellet kind of thing. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a physical thing that's happening. It's a very difficult thing to break out of. And I'm sure that a lot of people, um, you know, being wonderfully saved and, and God does a special work in them and can just completely turn them away from that, like immediately. I'm sure that has happened to some of you out there. I know similar things have happened with other situations. I have no doubt that God does that in some cases. Um, and in my case, what happened was I was just like I was with a lot of other things. I slowly became convicted about it. Like, hey, you know what? I probably shouldn't be doing this. You know, I tried to continue it for a while after um, after uh, you know be- becoming saved, and it started to be like kind of convicted about this isn't right. I should do something about this, and to the point where I actually had to start trying to figure out what to do about it. One of the first steps that can things that convicted me was. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, "Look, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, I can't. I can't think of a scenario where that's more appropriate than uh, fantasizing about a woman in 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 masturbation or what have you, whether it's pornography or what whatever." And he says, "You commit adultery with her." So my thinking at the time was like, "Okay, if I commit adultery with her, I'm thinking this is for if you're looking at a woman who is you know somebody else's wife or maybe you're married." and you have a wife, but you're thinking about some other woman, then you're committing adultery with her. Like, like that's what really adultery was. You know, the, the law was don't commit adultery. That is, don't, uh, besides your wife, don't have another wife, or don't, if you're, even if you're not married, don't sleep with another person's wife. So, it's, so in that context is the way I initially took that. So what I did originally, one of the first steps I took was, I'm not going to think about anybody that is, uh, that is married because at the time I wasn't married so there wasn't a problem in my head uh, of that so I was thinking well and, uh, you know, I'm just going to make sure I'm not thinking of anybody else's wife and I kind of stepped that up as I progressed um, and I noticed something immediately once I took those first steps it, first of all it was incredibly hard to do because I was like, man, this is not as amazing and you know great as what I'd been used to and used to getting whatever I want when I whenever I wanted it what with the internet and all that stuff. Um, and that eventually came to the point, and I had a girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife. I'm not sure if that's relevant or not, but that's the way it worked out. Um, and the the big thing I got convicted about was I'm not going to think about anybody else. Like if she's not there, we you know we we weren't having sex. We never we didn't have sex before we were married, um, and so I was thinking, okay, I'm not going to think about any anybody else. First, I'm, obviously, pornography is out of the question in that scenario. Um, it, it just should be out of the question. There is no scenario where pornography is okay, in my opinion. Um, but in terms of a mental thought life, I was thinking just my girlfriend. Now that was such a revolutionary thought to me at the time. And to any guy out there, I, I know this is probably shocking to, to most women out there, but that is a very 
unheard of kind of thing in most male heads is that you're going to exclusively only fantasize about your girlfriend or exclusively only fantasize about your your wife. And what I noticed immediately, even in the first steps I was taking in this direction, was that all the conviction that I had wasn't there anymore. Like, I didn't feel the same kind of conviction. I felt like, hey, you know, that was okay or whatever. Now, I want to qualify this big time by saying this was my journey on this thing. I'm not telling you this is what the Bible says. I'm not telling you this is how God wants you to do it. I'm not telling you that this is what's going to work for you. I'm just telling you what happened in my life with this. And, um, you know, and I, the, one of the, the guy wrote uh, back, I answered him before this, and he was saying that he feels he's not married. Uh, he doesn't have a girlfriend, and he feels convicted that he that any kind of masturbation whatsoever uh, or fantasizing of any type is is not is not good for him to do. And for that guy, I would say that's something that you need to be attentive to. If that's the way that you really feel that you are that you're being led to do, and that's the only right thing for you to do, then that's what you need to pay attention to. You don't need to pay attention to me. If you feel like you're getting told something differently, then you need to disregard what I'm saying because it's not unheard of that God will give one person a particular, uh, in this realm of liberty, you might not be able to go to whatever, uh, a, a bar or have a glass of wine or, or whatever, but, but maybe another guy can and it's not bad for him, but God said, you don't do it. So there is that sort of umbrella in liberty that we shouldn't try to force our liberties on somebody else that God may have other plans for. Uh, that being said, this is my journey. So um, the question then in that scenario comes like, okay, what, what about the people that don't have a girlfriend or aren't married? What about them? And, and I think that I'll say it like this, and I tried to say this in the video, but it perhaps wasn't that clear. There is a pure fantasy life for you. I can only tell you that there are guidelines that it seems to be certainly not anybody's wife. I would certainly extend that to anybody's girlfriend. Obviously not pornography or these kinds of things. But there is some kind of thing in your life, I would submit, that that is pure, uh, a pure fantasy life. And depending on your situation, as I said, I think that having a pure fantasy life can um, prevent you from actually sinning. Uh, one of Paul's main points in terms of sinning, w w w sexual sin, was like, you're uniting yourself to a prostitute and doing all this stuff. Don't you know that when you're doing that, you're making yourself one flesh? All the other sins, you know, you're not uniting yourself to a, a particular person. But that's the worst of all to do that. And so in that case, maybe, you know, that, that might prevent some even worse sin or something like that. Perhaps, I don't know. I, I, I just, you know, with this issue, it's difficult because there's very little to go on. Uh, and I think because there's little to go on, we don't have a lot of discussion about it. And because it's really, really weird to talk about. I mean, I in some ways cannot believe that I'm sitting here talking to thousands of people about uh, masturbation. But that's just the way it ended up going. So here we are. Um, and it's not an easy, easy thing to do, and you probably don't hear it all that much. Uh, but I think it's important to at least get these kind of ideas out there, maybe discussing about it. And if you are, uh, and to this day, there is uh, no scenario in my life where any kind of fantasy other than about my wife is okay. There is, anything other than that is a sin to me in my situation. Um, so that's just um, that's just where I'm at with that. And I hope that you understand my caveats here, that this is not 
a for everybody and that it might be different in your situation and that I wanted to emphasize the part that that was a slow a process at first for me it took a, it took a while to even be introduced to the idea that such a thing was even possible and it's not it doesn't sound possible to you guys out there I know I'm telling you that it is possible um, but you have to be serious about it and you need to be attentive to those convictions and I'm not saying that it's a perfect road I'm not saying that you won't that you do it perfectly or that you won't slip up here and there or whatever there's going to be lots of falling down on this particular issue because it's such a stronghold so I don't want to give you the impression that I am a, a you know this pillar of perfectness about this or whatever but it, there's going to be uh, slip-ups but the point is that you need to really really take this seriously because it is a, a problem it's adultery in your heart you're committing a when when jesus pointed this out to people he said look this is just as bad to commit this kind of stuff in your heart than it is to go out there and do it so it's a serious issue that we ought not take lightly just because culture takes it like lightly um and that you you know we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to recognize this is something that needs to be dealt with and we need to take steps to, to take care of it. All right, I think that concludes the show today. So um, if you have any questions, again, don't hesitate to write. You can do so at my Facebook page, facebook.com slash nowhere to run, or at any of the websites, Ancient Aliens Debunked, BibleProphecyTalk.com. They will all get you to an email address where you can ask a question. So, hope this helps, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.